Welcome to the Driving Change Podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network, where we live at the intersection of neuroscience and storytelling. If you love great stories and you love understanding the mindset it takes to be a world-class change agent, then join us as our fascinating guests from all walks of life unpack their unique journeys of perseverance and passion, of expertise and experience, and be inspired to use your own story to drive change. Hey everybody, it's the host of the Driving Change Podcast, Jeff Bloomfield, and and today we got a special episode for you as we're winding down 2023. We thought it would be fun to take a quick look back at a couple of our, our favorite guests in the, the neuroscience of, of change, not just communication and decision-making, but the folks who are experts at this idea of change, change activation or change resistance for some of us. And so we've taken a, a compilation of, of four of our favorite change management, really great communicators. We've got Dr. Richard Boyatzis, we've got Dr. BJ Fogg, we've got Dr. Angus Fletcher, as well as Dr. Caroline Leaf. And I'm going to give you just a couple of, of snippets from previous episodes. We're going to begin this episode with Dr. Richard Boyatzis. And for those of you who remember, this one's kind of going back into the archives a bit. Dr. Boyatzis, a friend of the family here, is a tenured professor up at Case Western Reserve University. But what he's really known for is the research arm of Daniel Goleman's work with emotional intelligence. And he wrote Primal Leadership, Dr. Boyatzis did. He also wrote his most recent book, Helping People Change. And in this little clip you're gonna see, Dr. Boyatzis and I, we're talking and discussing really a lot of what's happening from a neuroscientific standpoint inside the brain and how managers and leaders are communicating with a way sometimes it's preventing us from being willing to change. And then he kind of flips it and shows us how to help people change, not just because you want them to, but because you're communicating with them in a way that's much more positive in the framing of information in their mind. Let's take a listen to this discussion we would get a lot more productivity as the research has shown, a lot more innovation as the research has shown, a lot more citizenship and engagement. I mean, we're suffering from a motivational crisis at work these days. I mean, according to the annual survey um, of engagement, we've got, I think, 76% of the people in the United States who have full-time jobs do not feel engaged in their work. 83% of those with full-time jobs in Europe, 81% in Japan. That means that most people are going to work and not really bringing their whole talent or body or willingness. So you stop and ask the question, what can people do? Well, I think part of it is how do you talk to each other at work? And all too often people think because they're an executive or a manager or a production line supervisor that well, I don't get into all that psych- social work stuff. Um, and what they're, again, forgetting is that they're not managing strategies. They're not managing plans. They're not managing money. They're managing people who are doing those things. Or they're managing people who are managing people who are managing people who are doing the actual work. So the question of, are the people reporting to you or the people with whom you interact, even your peers, are they motivated? And how do you engage them? How do you engage them in listening about learning? How do you get them to be excited about new possibilities? And that's where I think we have this tremendous opportunity in our work organizations to literally turn people on you know, yeah. without drugs. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what I want to get into a little bit. And it's, it's right in alignment with, we tell clients a lot that when we look at Typical performance, I don't want to go down this path too far yet, but typical performance management systems in companies today. And when you hear a leader say, yeah, our people just complain that they don't like to be micromanaged. I say, you know what I've never heard? I've never heard someone say, hey, I don't like to be micro coached. They always say I don't like to be right. They always say I don't like to be micromanaged. That's right. That's right. The principles in what you're talking about and where I want to jump off here is on the neuroscience piece, because what we all have in common, the three of us especially, is we, we understand that it's a really a combination of the biology, the psychology, and the physiology of, of the human brain and how it interprets information in the world around it. It either allows it to accelerate change or, or causes it to continue to resist change. And I know in 2000, just this past January, 
Harvard Business Review had that special edition, uh, the brain science behind business. And if I'm not mistaken, there were some pretty elite authors in that, you being one of them, right? Social intelligence and biology right, of right. leadership. Um, and you, I think you and Daniel Goleman have been leading that, leading the way on that for decades. So tell me in the audience what you think the importance of the study of neuroscience is when it comes to coaching and relationships and leadership. Neuroscience is a method. And the method helps us to understand the mechanism. So there's nothing magical, although people do feel all of a sudden, you know, after 53 years of publishing scientific research, now that I put up brain scans, I say, oh, you're doing real science, you know, as of all the rest of the stuff was kindergarten work. But, but the fact is that when you have a notion, a theory of leadership or change, and you think that there is a certain way um, and to reach people, one of the tests of that is to predict how that functions when you look at people's neurological activation. Because our brains are getting activated in thousands of a second. So by the time we get to stimulating our hormonal systems, which take a little longer, um, we're really talking about what drives it. And what drives it is a whole lot of interactions between these billions of neurons. In the book, we talked about um, a series of three fMRI studies we did, really testing uh, whether or not coaching or helping someone create an environment toward what we call the positive emotional attractor. And we're calling that coaching with compassion, where you're focused on the other person versus coaching to the negative emotional attractor, which is what we call coaching for compliance, which is what we think people mostly do. Now, it's well-intended, right. but in trying to fix people and trying to show people what to do and trying to make them better, we actually activate networks in the brain, a particular network called the task positive network, analytic network, that closes people down to new ideas. And most of the time, we don't understand that. Look, every time we add another goal or metric and think we're motivating someone, we're actually doing the opposite. Because the studies are now out showing that when you focus people on something analytic, you suppress a part of their brain that's open to new ideas. So the very nature of how we go about doing it in organizations has been quite dysfunctional. Now, you wouldn't know that if you just asked people, because very often if you ask them in psychological studies, they say, oh, yeah, I'm really focused on this goal that my manager gave me. Well, that's bull. What they're doing is they're giving you the politically correct answer because, you know, God forbid, they don't want their manager to hear that they don't really care. Um, so what ends up happening is the neuroscience helps us go underneath it. So I want to ask, because um, for the audience out there, we do have Dan Dockery at my side again today. You've heard Dan on multiple podcasts, and, and Dan has been a, a longtime student under Dr. Boyatzis. And so Dan and I talk, talk frequently, and, and we've collectively come up with the term self-preservation orientation, where we, we talk about that most human beings are, you know, we're biologically predisposed for self-preservation. And the, re the reason I bring this up is because it fits perfectly in alignment with two things I want to talk about. One you just mentioned, which is the idea of the empathic network versus the analytical network and how our self-preservation plays into that based on how you're communicating with me. And then the other one I want Dan to talk about and ask on is the intentional change theory that you have been really doing a lot of work over the years on. How those, sure. two, how those two things, really three things, uh, really come into play when I'm trying to help another individual change for their betterment, knowing that they're predisposed for self yeah. Well, let, let me, I have to flip it to put it in context. Intentional change theory explains um, and predicts how and why some people will get involved in sustained desired learning and change and others won't. And we know that most of the time, management, education, MBA programs are a waste of time. We know that most management training in companies are a waste of time in terms of produced, sustained change. That is change that goes beyond the honeymoon period. When we do study it, intentional change theory you know, that I've been working on for 50 some years now shows how there are these five stages of discovery that a person goes through iteratively. The key is um, it wasn't until about 25 years ago 
that I began to focus on the mechanism that allows a person to move from one stage to the next. Okay. Because it is not natural in the sense that your environment pushes you the other way, as you and Dan have talked about, towards self-preservation, which is defensive and blocks progress. Now, what I discovered in the process is these two, uh, I call them tipping points, this positive and negative emotional attractor inside of us. And these are uh, two different states. So being in a positive emotional attractor is having um, positive thoughts. I mean, positive affect. It is also being in the parasympathetic hormonal system, the only known antidote to stress. and Uh, having your brain more frequently go into this empathic network where you're open to people and ideas. The negative emotional attractor is being in the sympathetic or the stress response, describing things negatively or defensively, and being in the analytic network, which suppresses the empathic. Now, the thing that makes it so difficult is we need both. Right. We We need the negative to survive. We need the positive to thrive. And the positive enables us to be open and therefore shift to the next stage of a change process. Uh, And our point in the book is if you're truly helping someone in whatever role you're in, you're helping them move more frequently, frequently into the positive emotional attractor state for a period of time. I mean, most people don't stay there very long. um, By very long, I'm talking about minutes rather than hours. Um, But it's just that part of your job is to move people back to it because everything else around us puts us into the negative state. Mm. As you pointed out, and you and Dan are talking about, for good ecological reasons. I mean, the human organism has to defend itself. I mean, if you're about to be eaten or shot, it doesn't matter that you're not flourishing or thriving. (laughs) You know, it's a mood issue. But on the other hand, if all you do is defend yourself, it's a pretty hollow existence. Um, what we're trying to do in all of our research, and Dan actually is doing his research right now uh, quite eloquently, is showing how even the way managers and subordinates provide feedback to each other can push them into one of these states. And all too often, we think that by pushing people into the negative state, by slapping them with some feedback, we're going to motivate them to change when we now know that it activates this defensive hormonal system. It activates an analytic network because right away you're trying to figure out what the hell went wrong, gone, what went wrong. And all of that leads to the mind closing down. So next up, we've got you know one of my all-time favorite researchers on this on the topic of change is Dr. B.J. Fogg. Now, Dr. B.J. Fogg, out of, most of his work was done out of Stanford University, and he he worked on he's done tiny tiny habits. He's also been he's the godfather, if you will, of the change activation curve, is what I call it. And in this discussion, Dr. Fogg and I are talking a little bit about what it takes to really help create change. And he talks a lot about that idea of the environment that needs to potentially change, how big is the change versus how small is the change, and how he's helped thousands upon thousands of people around the world now create little habits that have led to big transformation and how he's done that in his research, but also in his practical work. Let's take a listen in on just a snippet of that episode and think about how you might be able to take some of these principles and apply them to change in your life as you head into a new year. People are, tend to stay stuck in status quo until something triggers them to move from where they are, beyond where they are, into something new. Sometimes a gain message of what you can gain if you change doesn't seem to move people. And other yeah. times, a risk of loss yeah. of what you will lose if yeah. you don't change does. What's your experience been with yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, let me take the question and broaden it a, a bit and then sure. get more uh, focused on the question itself. It was 2011 when. I figured out the tiny habits method enough, goofing around with my own life that I decided to start to teach it to others. And I didn't realize this would go on for years and I would end up teaching tens of thousands of people, like 40,000 is when I stopped counting. 
But even from the first day that I launched, you know, I invited people to join and I thought maybe I'd have six people and 60 people signed up and went to 180 and 200 and 300 and stayed there for years. Um, even in that first little lesson, I said, hey, there are three things that cause lasting change. Number one is an epiphany. They happen, but guess what? You can't design epiphany for yourself or other people. So take that off the table, okay? You can't force that. But these other two ways you can. You can redesign your environment, which will lead to change. Or, and you can take these small incremental steps, create these habits that are super tiny, and you can do that reliably. So it really comes down to, and it's this, oh, I don't want to say it's synergistic, but it's the interplay between environment change and change and creating these habits in small incremental ways and they work together. So that's, that's, that's what we have. Now, if somebody needs to change a behavior quickly and it's a big behavior, then guess what? You have to change your environment, whether you redesign it or move to another environment. If you don't have to do something big and quickly, then incremental change is a great way to go. But as you make small incremental changes using the tiny habits method or just doing it in your own way, you will naturally change your environment. That's why they work together. So that's how I look at it. Now, when we look at, you know, what are those moments or what actually causes the change to begin? I believe that everyone aspires to improve their life. That's just built in. And if people don't take steps to do that, it's either they don't know how or more likely they've tried and tried different products and programs and they've not succeeded and as a result of that, they blame themselves like, oh, I'm a broken person or I lack willpower or I lack motivation. And what I found in the early days of teaching Tiny Habits, and it made me very, very sad, is how many people had given up mm. on their dreams or given up on trying to change because they just felt like, well, maybe other people can do it, but I can't. And that's a big part of my work today is like, no, you can. And it wasn't your fault. You didn't change. You just didn't have the right approach yet. So once, and this is what I see week after week, ever since 2011 with Tiny Habits, and still we have this five-day program, we measure the impact week after week. Once people see that they can change and they see evidence, it's not like me telling them, they actually put into practice. Then it just, it, um, I'd call it, well, they build success momentum. Then there's this springboard moment. I don't have another way to describe it where it's, it's like a gymnast running down the, the little ramp and boom, she does this big flip. Yeah. Then, they, then it takes away the fear or the inhibitions and they seem to step up and do big things. And about 20% of the people do that within five days of tiny habits. And pretty much everybody can wire in at least one habit fairly substantially within five days with this way. And it's just like the, the thing that is exciting is this isn't like magic and it's not that hard. It's just, a, it's this, you're hacking three things to get there. So when I, and as an academic, having worked with everyday people and coaching them to change, I realized how discouraged people were and how much self-trash talk was going on and how much people were blaming themselves. And in some ways, tiny habits from starting about 2012, I didn't share it for that reason, but within about a year or so, I was like, this is a global intervention to help people understand that they're not flawed and it's not that they you know, lacked willpower motivation, that they, they can change. They just need to do it in a much better way than what they'd been given before. It's fascinating. And not to go, my audience knows that sometimes I go nerd out. I call it nerding out. I go nerd out on the neuroscience. But we know now with neuroplasticity that when the neurons are doing something new, they fire and then they start to wire. Mm-hmm. And it creates a neural pathway, right? But the neural pathway can be stuck in old ways of doing things. And But the incremental change you're talking about allows you to do that little firing and wiring simply, right? Yeah. It Part of it that. is you can sneak it in. Yeah. And, you know, I was, oh, I got up at five, in, at five in the morning. I was presenting to wellness leaders in Turkey, hundreds of wellness leaders in Turkey. And one of the questions was, well, what about self-sabotage? And one of the things about doing just tiny, these tiny changes and approaching it in small ways is 
you're you're not you're you're not telling yourself you're going to do this huge thing. It's like it's so simple. Like floss one tooth. Well, of course I can do that, right? It's not run a marathon or meditate for an hour a day, which of course we don't. We we'll feel challenged by that, and we may find ways to forget. I'm putting that in air quotes. Everybody who are not watching the video, forget to meditate or do these hard behaviors because we don't want to set ourselves up for pain or failure. Right. It's so true. And I think so many people resist even attempting change for either, to your point, a history of, of what they yeah. perceive as failure or that, and that, that there's a snowball effect of self-sabotage that can cause you to stay stuck, right? Yeah. Now, for some people listening to this, you'll totally relate that. Some people won't. And I was more in the camp of it took me coaching real, it you know, outside, it, I didn't discover the bulk of this through academic research. It was my hands-on practice coaching hundreds of people over and over. And there was one week about six months in where a woman wrote me back and we were talking about celebration and self-reinforcement. And she wrote back and she said, oh my gosh, I now realize I've endured a lifetime of self-trash talk. Mm. And I was, I guess, grew up in not that kind of thing. And of course, I wasn't surrounded at Stanford with people that were constantly doing self-trash talk. But by interacting with everyday people um, week after week after week, I then recognized this is where most people are at. There's this this ongoing dialogue of self-criticism, self-trash talk, and that's holding them back. So it really took me getting out of sort of the Silicon Valley, Stanford, you know, the high achiever, people who have succeeded a lot to understand that this is where everyday people are at and that I could help them with this method. And I really felt like, I don't want to get too woo-woo here, but, you know, fast forward, it dawned on me, BJ, this was given to you and you have a responsibility to share this. Going back to the, where much is given, much is expected. And that's been a big driver of me. So I just kept going. Well, behavioral change is part of your purpose. I mean, that's just who you are, right? When you understand your purpose, it becomes, that's the path and you find that path, right? So so let's go back a minute to, you know, my introduction to you, which was in your original behavioral change curve. And, And you discovered in your research that, you know, change happens as a factor of motivation over ability. And so, you know, some awareness or triggering event, and then you have how motivated is that person? How hard or easy is the change to take place? And I've tried to interpret that through the lens of influence. If you're trying to influence a customer or you're coaching someone to change and your employee, something like that. But conceptually, can you help help the audience understand your research relative to that curve itself? What yeah. made you come up with it? Was it was it an epiphany moment? I have mine in the shower. I call it the Eureka tank. That's where all my epiphanies happen. Or was it a time over time you developed it? Yes, it came piece by piece. Okay. So probably over the course of two years. And it finally all came together in 2007. And so I call it the fog behavior model. And you can say it in a couple of sentences. And it goes like this. Behavior happens when three things come together at the same moment. There's motivation to do the behavior. There's ability to do the behavior and there's a prompt. And if any one of those things is missing, the behavior won't happen. And if they all come together at the same moment, it will. Now, Jeff, you've added a piece to it that is hard to say in words. I mean, there's a visual version of this that has this curve. Um, And I call it an action line. And so what that, that, that curve looks really simple, but it's very powerful. And what it, basically what that curve shows I'm going to break it down in three ways. Number one, the more motivation you have to do a behavior, the more likely you are to do it. So as you move up the the XY graphic, as you move up on the motivation scale, there's more area over the curve, the more likely the behavior happened. And then looking at the ability, which is the horizontal axis, as something becomes harder to do, there's a less area above the curve. So in other words, the harder a behavior the less likely. So that's what that, it's, it's very simple visual drawing, but it's saying both of those things at the same time. But what that um, curve also shows is that motivation and ability work like teammates. And Jeff, I'm embarrassed to say, it took me like six years to find the right word of the relationship. And the word is this, compensatory. They compensate, one can compensate 
for the other. And so imagine you have a two-person volleyball team and one person is really weak. Well, if the other person's really strong, you can still win. Both people can be strong, but they both can't be weak. The same thing with motivation ability. To be above the action line, if motivation is low, then it has to be really easy to do. If motivation is high, then it can be easy or hard to do. Uh, So there's this, so you can look at any behavior that you do, other people do and say, okay, what was their motivation level? What was their ability level? And if they actually did the behavior, then you had at least one of those factors to be very strong but neither one of them zero. If motivation zero, behavior doesn't happen. If ability zero, in other words, it's impossible. And of course, the behavior doesn't happen. Right. So that's there's this relationship that really hasn't been studied systematically before the behavior model. But once you see it, it's all around us. Like if I'm in the airport and I can take uh, one flight of stairs, or let's say three flights of stairs, or take the escalator that goes up three flights, well, guess what? Most people are taking the escalator. I've done counts on that. It's very, very clear. But if I'm super motivated, like I'm in a huge rush <laughs> to make my flight, then guess what? You might choose the stairs. You might choose the harder behavior because you have tons of motivation. Right. So these, the way these two components work is really all around us. And you can just analyze behaviors from this perspective. Uh, I love it. In fact, unbeknownst to you, I've attributed Jeff Bezos' entire net worth to your mm-hmm. model. I said, said he figured out that he has a motivated audience. If he can make buying products super easy, the velocity of behavioral change will dominate the universe. And it's kind of what he did, right? And he, he he created a, he had a motivated person. I need fill in the blank. I need a new book. I need a new whatever. And it's on there. And he made it very easy to to purchase, check out, click away. And And that's a purchasing example of it. You're right. It's everywhere. Yeah, and, and one thing to overcome in that example. So I, I have a model for what makes things easy and hard. And there's five links in the model. How much time, how much money, how much physical effort, how much mental effort, and does it break your existing routine? So that fifth link mm. is the least obvious. But when we talk about Amazon and buying books, well, it didn't require lots of time and da 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 but it did require you to do something in a new way, break your yeah, routine. That's right. But people that were motivated enough. Again, if you have high motivation, you can do things that are hard, even if it's breaking your routine. If you don't have enough motivation, you're just going to do things the same old way because changing your routine is one of the simplicity factors. Um, You know, my hands-on experience with tiny habits are people that are looking to change. So Mm -hmm. those thousands and thousands of people, I know a lot, a lot, a lot about how people create habits quickly and easily, but these are not people that have been assigned to do tiny habits like you might do in a laboratory setting. And they're not people that are completely discouraged. They might be discouraged, but they haven't completely given up. So the sample that I've had of thousands and thousands of people are like everyday people, but they're not completely given up and they're not completely stuck. Now, part of the promise of tiny habits in this approach to change is you can get unstuck and really, after a few years, what I realized is that tiny habits, yeah, fine, you'll learn to create habits and you will create habits, but it's really about creating hope, hmm. um, hope that you can change. And so a lot of my work these days in thinking, and I know it doesn't map back to traditional neuroscience, is how do you help people overcome fear and resistance by giving them evidence that creates hope? And the evidence is, oh my gosh, I am drinking more water. I am flossing my teeth or I am doing push-ups. I'm seeing I can change. And with that, it seems to affect their identity. Mm. So we measure this week after week. We haven't shown a causal link. So we're making an inference here. By succeeding and creating habits in these tiny ways, then you get these. And in, in the, the research, they fill in the blank. After doing tiny habits, I now see I'm the kind of person who, so it's qualitative, but we have thousands and thousands of these statements about, I now see I'm the kind of person who can change. I'm the kind of person who can follow through and so on. So I'm really looking at it as conflicting motivations for becoming better or changing. One is they want to, there's some hope there. 
but that's being tamped down. And it's like vectors in physics. And if you map to the behavior model, it's like a, a force going down, which is fear of mm. failing or fear of looking bad. And so by helping people succeed, even in tiny ways, it seems like that fear is reduced or eliminated, which then lets the hope emerge, which boosts motivation, which then opens up the opportunity to make these big changes. And like I said, almost 20% of people ever make the big change. So that mechanism really interests me. And I think one way that I think about it isn't so much in um, neuroscience terms, but more like physics vectors where there's hope, which is a a motivator, and there's fear, which is a demotivator, and they're pushing on each other. Mm. You can increase the overall level of motivation either by adding more hope or reducing fear. And at least through tiny habits, you do both. The thing that seems to lead to the breakthrough, and I say seems because I haven't run an experiment to show this is the mechanism, it's by getting rid of fear. It's almost like a balloon with ballast on it. And you've got the hot air that's bringing it up, but you've got ballast that's holding it down. So if you can get rid of the ballast, you don't have to add any more hot air. The balloon will go up. Great. That might so, be the most common sense way of thinking. Of yeah, it. that's a great analogy. And you, well, you, may, you mentioned the word identity earlier. So it sounds to me like what's happening is, is you're literally changing a person's belief because belief is what ultimately mm-hmm. drives behavior. And when you, yeah. when, you re, when you increase hope and reduce fear, you're changing their literal belief of what they can and can't do, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, at, and, you know, at Stanford, we would certainly call that efficacy or self-efficacy, thanks to Albert Ventura being there. But yeah, and I smiled really big when you said that because um, I really preach hard against the idea of in order to change behavior, we must, first must change attitudes or beliefs and then behavioral change because you can go the other way around. Just get people to feel successful on behaviors and then their attitudes and opinions shift. It's like, it's not like the logical, and I call that the information action fallacy. Like information will then change attitudes and beliefs, which will then change behavior. Don't do it that way, people. Just help people change their behavior. And then you get a lot of effects, including the perception of one's own self, the belief about their ability to change and so on. So next up, we've got a snippet from my conversation with Dr. Angus Fletcher. And now Dr. Fletcher is fascinating because he really does take the work of the neuroscience researcher and combines it with the idea and the art of communication through the storytelling lens. And and Dr. Fletcher really takes us on a nice self-discovery journey about the story that we might be telling ourselves every day. And as I like to always say, the most important story you're going to hear today is the one that's going on between your ears. Take a listen into my conversation with Dr. Fletcher and then maybe think about day-to-day, hour-to-hour, what story are you telling yourself heading into 2024? I think one of the things that holds most human beings back from their potential is the story they tell themselves. And that story they tell themselves can, you know, it can be from, I call it junk in the brain trunk, right? We all have different degrees of junk in the brain trunk from our backgrounds and trauma and experiences. And then we, you're going to tell yourself a story every day you're awake, right? Every moment you're, every waking moment, your brain is telling your, yourself a story about something. Why do you think that some people have this gear to where they're telling themselves this amazing future story. And, and it's not a manifestation thing. It's a, they're creating their future in the way they're telling themselves what's possible. And then the brain is designed to go help deliver on that versus so many others who keep telling themselves a story every day of what's, it's like the Daniel Kahneman, you know, the prospect theory, right? We, we move at twice the urgency to avoid a loss and to pursue a gain. Well, probably 90% of the population wants to wake up and tell themselves what's not good and what they should avoid versus what's possible. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, first of all, you just answered your own question in the sense that I think most people are playing not to lose as opposed to win. Um, and the main reason for this is just evolutionarily fear is very, very strong in our brain. As you said earlier, self-preservation is our first instinct. But as you also pointed out earlier, we have created a society where our fear instinct is too strong. 
the world is actually much safer than our brain thinks because our brain is actually older than our world. And so that's why if you can't find a parking space, you start panicking. You're like, oh my goodness, I can't find a parking space. You know, if you're like five minutes late for something, you start to like stress out like somehow the world's going to come to an end because your primordial brain is telling you you're going to die. It's the same thing with money. You know, all of a sudden, if you spend too much money, you start feeling your heart rate elevate, you know, like somehow you're going to die. And what you actually have to do is you have to shift that thinking and you have to get yourself out of that fear response by telling yourself a different story. And so I work a lot with Martin Seligman and 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 his team. And one of the things that he really focuses on is is how you get into a kind of an optimate, excuse me, an optimism space. And, you know, optimism is all about just constantly reminding your brain, this could work, this could work, this could work, this could work, as opposed to this couldn't work, this couldn't work, this couldn't work, this couldn't work. And also, as different from this will work, if your brain is always saying to itself, this will work, life is hard. Most of the things you think will work won't. And then what will happen is your brain will get demoralized. But if you get up every morning saying this can work, you are investing faith in yourself and in life. And, you know, faith is different from certainty or pessimism. And so basically just getting your brain in that kind of that faith space where it's always saying what's possible could be. It's a simple story to tell yourself, but it will help you just, as you said, actualize all those great ideas you already have in your head. Well, let's pause there for a second because that was really, really powerful. So I think some people misinterpret the idea of the optimism piece of saying, well, I've got to tell myself this will work. And what you're saying is if you tell yourself this will work, the minute you're up against any moment of resistance on the journey to will, your brain's going to go, see, this wasn't going to ever work. And then you're now you're back into the negative narrative. But if you say this could work or this can work, you're anticipating you're going to have to modify things along the way and, and be a little more agile. But you're still on the pursuit of it working. That's such a different mindset, I think, for people. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, you just articulated it better than I could. And that's right. I mean, that's the difference between optimism and magical thinking. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people out there who think that magical thinking or the secret or something like that is, is the secret to success. And when I talk to people who actually have very kind of low confidence in themselves, a lot of them are magical thinkers. And it's because, you know, they think, oh, this is going to work. And then when it doesn't work, they think, oh, either life is against me or I did something wrong or all these kinds of things. But if you're a resilient thinker, a resilient thinker is always thinking this could happen. This could work. And when it doesn't work, you don't get down because you say to yourself, how can I grow from that? And so really the key is a growth mindset. And part of a growth mindset is very simply having gratitude for the hardness of life. Uh, you want to get up every, mo every morning and say, life is really, really hard. It's not easy to succeed. And I'm grateful for that because that means I'm going to earn it. As opposed to being someone who thinks, oh, you know, life should be easy. Or if I just get three simple, fast tricks, my life is going to change in an instant. You're just setting yourself up for fragility. And, you know, if you do succeed, you're not going to take that much pleasure in it because you're going to think it was obvious all along. Wow. So there's what you're saying is there's, there's two different types of optimists then. There's, there's agile optimists who are optimistic for the future, but they're also very agile in the, how they get there. And then there's episodic optimists who, you know, they get, they, they, they get optimistic in the moment, but then it doesn't happen. So then they're really episodic optimists are really just pessimists in disguise, right? Because then they're going to run to why, oh, life's hard. And I knew this was never going to work out. And I try to see every time I try to be positive about something, it never works out for me. And then they wait about three months and they get back in a good mood again. And they're episodically optimistic one more time, right? It's a yo-yo effect. I love that description. And that's completely true. And you see that all the time. I mean, it's almost like an addiction recovery cycle, you know, where people are like, I'm going to change my life. And then they crash and they go up and then they go down. And actually, really, the key to life is just consistency. And, you know, when things go well, you don't want to get overexcited. You want to take pleasure in them and have joy in them. But you don't want to, you know, you know, and, and the same thing when things go bad, you just want to say, well, you know, that's bad luck. And, and this is one of the things that I've really learned from Seligman and I think is really brilliant is, you know, when things go wrong, don't blame someone. Don't blame yourself, don't blame other people, and don't blame life. I mean, most of the time when something goes wrong, the first thing I see is people just try and find out who's responsible, who can I get angry at, who can I get upset at, who can I judge, right? And you're just getting yourself into this kind of negativity, self-defeating cycle. Whereas if you just say, you know what, that was just bad luck, you know? It could have worked. Maybe it should have worked, but I'm just going to try it again. Immediately, you snap out of all those negative emotions. You activate your brain to try again, and you're off and growing. And that's really more the key that I can say than anything else is just don't allow bad things to make you judge yourself or judge others or get angry. And I think if we had a little more of that psychology now today in America, which honestly is, I think, the psychology that kind of birthed America was that resilient psychology, not this anger, blame, you know, judgment kind of psychology. I think we'd all be a lot happier. Yeah, we could go, we could do a whole other episode on uh, 
social media and the impact of technology on our inability to be optimist, right? Exactly. <laughs> so let's go a little, even a further a step deeper thing. Cause one of my questions is around creativity. And do you, do you think that people have a, a different differing degrees of that creative gene and you studied literature and you studied cre- really creative geniuses back to Shakespeare and others Do some people just, they're just born with this amazingly imaginative creative gene and they see the world through this multicolored, you know, variation of what's possible and they, they just know how to then articulate it. Or is it something that, is it a skill? Is creativity, is it, a, is it an in, intuitive genetic predisposition or is it a skill that can be trained? Well, it's a skill that can be trained. I mean, it's genetic in the sense that all of us have it in us. Uh, you know, we're all born creative. It is in our genes. There is no single gene for creativity that people are born with or without. But I mean, this is the kind of hardwiring of the human brain. The human brain evolved to be able to innovate in dynamic situations. That's why, I mean, if you look over the last 5,000 years of human history, just think of all the extraordinary things that people across this world have done in so many different areas, whether it's art, whether it's science, whether it's engineering, totally extraordinary. Um, and we all have that in us. And the important thing that my work focuses on is how to train that part of your brain up. And the reason I got involved in this is because we've been noticing for the last 30 years, the children have been getting less creative. This has been something that has been tracked by a lot of researchers, not by my lab. I didn't start out with this, but many researchers across the globe have noticed kids are getting less creative. And we've been able to figure out why it's because our school system is making them less creative. And so naturally, you know, my team got together and we're like, well, if our school system is making them less creative, one, we should change the school system. And two, maybe we could figure out a better way. And so we've actually started piloting these ways. And and just over the summer, I mean, I can tell you, we've done two big, big trials, one involving elementary students, which showed a massive increase in creativity. So third, fourth and fifth graders and the other with the U.S. Army, including U.S. Special Operations. And we've done we've done a, a trial involving hundreds and hundreds of senior officers, giving them the same training. And they've also become significantly more creative. So we have the evidence in my lab. You can train yourself to become more creative. It's not magic. Um, and although all of us are creative in different ways and all of us probably do have a different ceiling in terms of creativity, most of us are not realizing our full potential. So what are some of the tips you've been able to help, whether it be the, the, the kids or whether it be the, 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 uh, the military? What are some things you do to help people see that practice being more creative or implement new skills to be creative? So the first thing we do is we just do an attitude adjustment. And we do this with both the third graders and we do this with 18 alphas uh, in the military. And so like the simplest thing is most kids are trained today to think there's a right answer to problems. And they get this from school. So you get a multiple choice test and you think there's a right answer here. If you wanna be creative, you have to say to yourself, there are many right answers. There is not one right answer. There are many right answers. And what that does is that immediately just kind of opens you to see the space that you have to play with. And in terms of the 18 alphas and the special operations, what we'll often do is we'll often bring them a, we'll bring back a complex problem from the field. So a problem that other Green Berets have encountered uh, that no one else has ever encountered before. And we'll bring that back to the training space and we'll give that to trainee Green Berets and we'll see that they can solve that problem in multiple different ways. And watching each other solve that problem in multiple different ways automatically opens up this emotional and attitudinal shift, which is I'm not trying to just find that one answer. I can find lots of answers. And, and we just know that immediately online to all these different areas of the brain opens you up, makes you more empathetic, makes you more curious, makes you less judgmental, makes you less negative, makes you more optimistic, all these kinds of things simply from that shift. So our last snippet is with Dr. Caroline Leaf, and she's become a trailblazer in so many ways. As a female neuroscience researcher, she really has blazed a trail in understanding. She's an expert at what I like to call the junk in the brain trunk, and she's taken a look at what are some of the roots that grow deep inside our backstory that are preventing us from living the kind of life that we want to live today. And she's such an articulate explainer of the science behind uncovering some of those roots and the tentacles that might be still holding you back, but also identifying ways to kind of release those tentacles and go into more of a growth mindset, which I know if you're like me, you're thinking about a new year, you've been thinking about new goals and new things you want to achieve in 24 and beyond. My conversation with Dr. Leaf might just help you get there. Let's take a listen. 
So let's talk a little bit about that because you, you've mentioned the phrase mind management several times today. And I think that's a big part of your process that you're talking about, right? This is part of that mind management process. And I was also, I was, I had bought into the, the old, the old myth of, well, 21 days to form a new habit, but your research has shown through using the neurocycle that no, no, it's a little different than that. You just mentioned 63 days for these really deconstructing and reconstructing. It's almost like you're, you're digging up the soil, right? You're taking it all the way yeah. down, digging up the so soil. The whole thing up aims. Pulling the roots up, but not, but not just that, but you're deconstructing to, to what's in the soil. Mm-hmm. And if you find out that it turns out that the nutrients in your soil were fear, then this process, this neurocycle will allow you to figure that out so that you can kind of put in some fresh topsoil uh, with exactly. something better. Is that, is that what some- this is? Pretty much, because this is going to still the reconstructed version, the reconceptualized version is not that I don't know my story. You still maybe if you had a terrible abuse or something and you talk about it, it makes you really sad because you still remember, but you've changed how it plays out into your future. So whereas before it was this, if it's in this state and I'm looking through this, this is my perspective of life. So therefore, I'm seeing everything in a very distorted view. like The toxic state. Um, yeah, I, I hate myself. I'm shame. I'm not worthy. I can't have a relationship. This always happens to me. Oh, this is, you know, that is coming from that toxic, toxic root. So when you deconstruct, no longer do you think I'm shame. It's no, I'm not shame. I felt it because of, I felt the depression because of, but you can't have shame. You can't be shame. You can't be depression. You can't be anxiety. You can't have a clinical diagnosis, even though that's the language that's used because anxiety isn't like cancer. Cancer isn't it. Diabetes isn't it. You can have that. You can't have depression. You experience it Mm. as a warning signal. Very different. It's a warning signal. It's a response. It's hugely important because it's your non-conscious mind telling your conscious mind through your subconscious mind that there is something that is very disruptive in your psychoneurobiology that if you don't pay attention, it's going to start exploding. And then that explosion is going to affect everything because when you're exploding, your emotions are completely out of control. So you're going to respond in ways that you don't want to. So your communication is pathological. And in that case, you, uh, you, that makes things worse. And if you don't deal with it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you travel down the severity the severity scale. And then people start giving you worse and worse and worse labels and worse and worse and worse drugs. And but at the core, you're amazing and life's happened. And that's why you're responding. And what we have to do is unpack why that's happening and then help to reconstruct. And that's hard work. And yes, the 21 days is a myth. It was a myth. I talk about it in my book. It was a surgeon years ago in the 60s that um, spoke about sort of cycles of three weeks um, for healing. Now, there is a valid biological base that three weeks, it, it seems to take, like, for example, if you get a blister, it takes around about three weeks for the immune system to work with the body to produce the stem cells to heal the blister. And the more severe the, um, the, the damage to the brain and the body physically, the more of these cycles you need. So let's say that you've had a a major cancer surgery or something, and that's obviously kind of major, three weeks won't be enough for your body to heal. You're going to need maybe 20, uh, 20 lots of three weeks or something like that. Right. So the concept of three weeks does a certain level of work, but it doesn't take you through the completion process. So I wanted to see, well, how do we get to the point where we start having these changes in our behavior? Like I told with my patients earlier on, how do I get someone who had a traumatic brain injury, couldn't even function on a, um, on a second grade level and they were in 12th grade? How do you get them back to that level and beyond? And how do you get someone who's in so much trauma from an abuse, whatever, how do you get into that point? What do you do? What are the cycles of time involved? So what I found was that in 21 days, if you deliberately and intentionally and work on this, where you're using your conscious veto power, where you're tapping into the non-conscious, which is different to the conscious, and we can define those in a moment so we don't talk about too many things at the same time. But if you, if you, as if you deliberately and intentionally are going to focus on, okay, this is the pattern. The pattern is X, Y, and Z, not functioning like you used to. What is the pathology? What is your communication pathology? In other words, what are you saying? What are you doing? What are you feeling? What are your perspectives? What, what is the pattern that is playing out in your overall relationships? And there's always going to be multiple. Generally, we'll think of three or four in one shot. As I'm saying this, people will think of three or four, maybe more. But then you take of those, you say, okay, which is the most dominant that's stopping me achieving what I know I can contribute, all the goals and visions and whatever. And, uh, and, uh, 
Um, then from there, you take the most dominant pattern and you start saying, okay, now let's unpack that pattern and start seeing what are the signals of that pattern. And then from the signals, you then tune in because these signals are coming from this. From the signals, you can then dig into what is your interpretation? What is the data here? What are you thinking, feeling, and choosing? What are the emotions? What are you, how are you seeing yourself? How are you seeing your vision of this thing? Which then takes you to, takes you to the tree trunk, which is what distorted thinking process happened you know, that, that I produce this as a coping mechanism, but it's not sustaining me, it's actually affecting me, but where did it come from? And then you get to the roots. But that is going, that process is going to take daily work of about 15 to 45 minutes for about 21 days, around about three weeks. So that's kind of the initial healing of the blister. It's the finding of the basic thing and it's starting to get to this level of deep intuitive thinking and, and that creates all this connection in the brain. And the, as you're doing these the steps of the neurocycle to do all of this that I've just described, you are forcing your brain into a very high level of functioning because at the same time as dealing with this toxicity, you're drawing on the wisdom, the wise mind, the optimism bias, the, 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 you're aligning all the psychoneurobiology to the point where resilience is increasing. So you may be crying, screaming, shouting, more depressed, more anxious, but it's different because it's, it's a pain that is coming from the work that you're doing. It's like if the hot lava pours out, it's still hot. It's still, it's not cold yet. So in the heat, it can get worse and can burn out fields and can burn. So you're starting to reveal the pain. And so in that 21, first sort of 21 days, you are getting a deep revelation of, um, almost getting worse, but it's progress. It feels may feel like you're going backwards, but you're going forwards. Because if you see the reason for your pain, that's a shock. And depending on how suppressed, how much you've denied, how much you've done to, just to cope, there's no judgment here. There's no guilt. There's no, you did something wrong. If you've been traumatized as a child, you did nothing wrong. If you've been hurt in, in a marriage, or if you've been hurt at work, or you've been experiencing any kind of war trauma, and you are manifesting these pathologies in your life, that is not your fault. That is not who you are. How you are showing up is a manifestation of what has happened. And therefore, you kind of need to step back into your wise mind, which we can all do if we know how to, and then analyze it in this way that I'm saying. So 21 days is, is kind of the point at which you'll realize, okay, this is my pattern. I'm starting to see the detail. I'm starting to see part of the roots. The deeper and more complex the trauma and the longer it's been there, the the, the more it, it won't be as clear. So you're not going to see all the roots. You'll see, okay, that part's sticking out of the ground. That part's still underneath. You'll see there's a bit of tape over this over here. That part's still not been revealed, but maybe this part's been revealed. And then you start reconceptualizing that, and it's a little green tree that you built. So it's not big. It's just a little one. But that that the green is healthy. So I know the pain. I know that I'm not depression or I'm not anxiety or I'm not this or I'm not that or I'm not my behaviors. Those were signals of, I know that I did that because of, and that's on how I wanted to play out. I want to see this differently. I want to be able to sustain a relationship. I want to have my creativity back again. I want to believe that there's a future, whatever it may be, whatever that looks like, but it's tiny. And that tiny, that tiny is, is has got to compete with something you spoke about earlier on when you were when you were summarizing what I had said is that there's trillions of thought trees with billions of memories inside of it because one thought tree can have thousands of memories and you've been building these since a certain point in the womb so there's a lot so this has got to compete with a lot of other thoughts I mean you can't even see it in this if you put it inside there so in order for this to compete with this. I have to stabilize this and I have to grow it. So that's what I wanted to find. How do you do that? Because we saw what we call gamma peaks in the brain at this day 21. And, and we saw, and a gamma peak is where learning takes place. When, when there's stabilized um, neuroplasticity happening. So when, when you build something new and it's, it's, looks like it's going to stay there. We see what we would call a lot of gamma activity in the brain across the left and the right side. Not just gamma, you'll get all the others as well, but you'll see these peaks of gamma, which is evidence for us that there's a, a, a frequency shift that means that you're, and, and it's associated with very strong neuroplastic changes. Let, let me give you an example of what this looks like in terms of not strong. So if you listen to this podcast, um, a listener, and they don't do anything else with this podcast, most of the couple of thousand roots that I'm giving you data and, and your couple of thousand interpretations, because the roots are always the source, what you're hearing with experience, and the branches are always your interpretation of based on your, your, your existing memories. If you don't do anything with this, within 24 to 48 hours, most of what I'm saying 
and you're now discussing is going to be gone. And you're going to know, oh, there's something about trees and whatever. So remember something. And there's some work. But if you take the time to actually learn what this is, re-listen, get the material, do the stuff, you will then be pouring more energy into this and you will grow it into, into something that's sustainable. So what I found that to get that, so to get a gamma peak, you need these 63 days. Within 24 to 48 hours, we don't get gamma peaks. If you don't get gamma peaks, it's going to go. It's not the, that little, that little thing that you've grown, that dendrite that you've grown that's made of thousands of proteins and vibrations and chemicals is going to just go away and transfer into heat energy. So 21 days enables us to do this basic conversion, but to now this has got to compete. We want this to actually impact us so that when we're in that next relationship, you don't, and, and, and you don't, uh, it sort of um, sabotage the relationship because you hate yourself. That now, that's what you were doing. I'm just giving an right. example. So now you, you you don't hate yourself anymore. You understand why you were doing that. So it's not that you were sabotaging on purpose. There's not something wrong with you that you can't have a relationship. It was a reason why at certain triggers in the relationship you were pulling out or whatever, or saying things that were pushing people away when you didn't really want to push them away. So you don't want that, but this has got to grow. So now you have to practice growing this over another 42 days. So what that's the focus, the focus thought gamma fertilizer for 42 days. Exactly. So you do the same five steps of the neurocycle. So for the first 21 days, you're doing the neurocycle, which is five steps of mind-driven activity that changes the neuroplasticity. So you're actually directing how the changes are happening to grow this. That's 15 to 45. The second 42 is five minutes, and that is not a lot. Five to seven minutes a day where you do the same five steps, but they slightly different. Same five steps that you just do less. And it's all in my book. It's also in the app. In the app, I literally walk you through with audio, video, script on exactly how to do this. So that extra 42 days is growing this. So at day 21, it looks like this. At day 42, it's going to look like this. But at day 63, it's going to look like this. Now we're talking. Now we have something that has sufficient energy to move from the non-conscious, which is the biggest, most intelligent part of us, of our mind. So our mind has the non-conscious, N-O-N, not unconscious. Unconscious is when you're knocked out by a baseball bat or an anesthetic. It's not a state of mind. It's basically, a, it's basically, it's not a, not part of mind. It's a, it's a, it's a state where you are put into through a drug or being knocked out by a baseball bat or something. So, so we've got to talk about mind as non-conscious in in non-conscious, which is where all these thought trees, every single experience you've ever had is stored. It's dynamic. It works 24-7. It never stops. It's ongoing. It's your driving force. At the core is wisdom. And then everything around the middle of the forest, which is wisdom, are all your experiences. And the wisdom is what we've got to tap into. That's the wise mind. And the deeper we think within the neurocycle trains you how to do this, the more you get in touch with your wisdom. Then you use your wisdom to fix up the mess. And so by the by 63 days, all the way through, you've been doing this. You've been developing the wise mind to talk to the messy mind and work together as a team. And so um, then, then, then when, when we have what we call automatization, so we see at 21 days gamma peak, and then we see a, a, a distinct change in the frequencies where as people are stabilizing, this is getting stronger and more and more powerful and more and more stabilized. So when it's stable, now you are doing it without thinking but you actually are thinking. It's your non-conscious mind is pushing it into your conscious mind and you can now autom automatically draw on that. But it doesn't mean that it's a stupid memory. Automatic almost implies robotic. It's phenomenally intelligent. It's just right. that it's slipped into that quantum state that you don't need to consciously manipulate it anymore, which you did in the initial state. The initial 21 days is very much manipulating in a good sense until you get to this point. And that's kind of that and we're in the flow state then, right? We're unconsciously competent. We've created exactly. that behavior there. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, Think of learning to drive. Jeff, this is just a super quick example. Think of learning to drive. At first, it's like and you've taught your kids to drive. We've got four kids. When we were teaching them to drive, they're all adults now. You're thinking everything is like you stole the car. It's everything. It's too much. Then suddenly you can drive. And every time you get in the car now, you don't, you just get in the car, you drive. Yeah, but it exactly. doesn't mean that it's not a very intelligent action. It is because the driving experience today is different to yesterday. You've got new roads, new people on the road. So you are drawing on this. And as right. you, it's, you're drawing on this established one. Before you learned to drive, you didn't have this. But now you've got right. this. That's that healthy, so that, successful neural cool. pathways that have been created with exactly. that. Exactly. Toxic version, that drives the toxic habits. So if we don't deal with it and we keep growing this, this can also get enormous. And that can drive us. 
So I hope you've enjoyed a little bit of a compilation of some of my favorite guests over the past couple of seasons, particularly around this topic of change. And none of us really likes to, to, to think about change that we're not choosing, but many of us know that we, many areas of our life, we do need to think about what could we do different? What can we be better at as we aspire to new heights and as we drive change in the world around us? So my encouragement to you is just to think about reflecting on this year, but don't think about it through the lens of the things that didn't go well. Think about all the great things that you've accomplished in 2023, whether they're small or whether they're gigantic. And let's start 2024 out with a positive growth mindset. Start telling ourselves the story of what's possible and help each other get there as we drive change together. We'll see you in the new year. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.